Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. You need to find the best path for you versus copying what someone else is doing. But the solution is the same as it would have been 20 years ago. It's to do all of those things, be consistent with them, just like deal with the fact that it's going to take a little longer than it would have when you were 25 to see results. Anything past the basics, I just don't see last with people. Yeah. So unless they're doing it for a period of time to solve a specific problem, it's not something that's sustainable. So like there has to be a purpose and a timeline behind it. Hey, it's Meredith. And you are listening to the Afternoon Snack Podcast. And in today's episode, we are bringing our friend and tactic head coach, Lindsay Martin, back on the show to talk about individual variation in people's abilities to reach goals. We touch on psychology, physiology, genetics, environmental influences. It's a really full episode, and we know you're going to like it. Lindsay Martin's back on the show today. Hey, welcome. (laughs) Thank you. The most embarrassing thing happens whenever you come over to our house, and I'm sure you know, but our dog really likes you. Yeah. Yeah. Drew and I are buddies. (laughs) I'd say, I want to say it's more than buddies. Yeah. (laughs) You're more than a friend to Rue. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So you watched Rue when we were in Tanzania for... A couple weeks, two weeks. No, we had her for two weeks and then you had her for two weeks. Yeah. And in that two weeks that you had her, something changed in her. <laughs> her brain chemistry <laughs> locked on. I think she imprinted, which is like definitely like some like dogs have like favorite people. And I can confidently say that you are the only one that gets that treatment. That's when, hilarious. Yeah. That when makes you me feel her. so good. You know what? I watched this Instagram reel. I think it was yesterday about signs that your dog has imprinted on you. And so there was like, they follow you around. They're always making eye contact with you, blah, blah, blah. So I was like, check, check for Georgia, my one dog and for Rue, but Millie, (laughs) the dog that I have imprinted on (laughs) doesn't check all the boxes. And I was sad. I was like, Millie doesn't love me back. (laughs) She's just very independent. She's so independent, which is good. Millie didn't imprint on anyone? No, I don't think so. Like she treats Chris and I pretty much the same. She's just like, like, I met Millie as a puppy, not me as a puppy, her as a puppy. (laughs) And maybe, so maybe she imprinted on me. It's like a cross. We had a lot of cuddles and she was a puppy. I don't know if you remember. I do. Yeah. I was like, I'm just going to get in the dog bed. Yeah. It wasn't (laughs) a big dog bed. No, it wasn't. Yeah. We have a dog trainer now for Rue. And so she's come over a couple of times and we try to explain it. But I think probably for our next session, you should just come and yeah. be a part of that. Yeah. <laughs> I can do that. Yeah. So I'm like, no, you don't understand. Rue gets airborne. <laughs> she licks my cheek. Yes. From, <laughs> like from, from the ground. It's <laughs> <Yes>. impressive. <laughs> great. She's great at aiming. Yeah. She's yeah. got a good, she's a good face torpedo. That's yeah. For sure. yeah. Thanks for coming back on the show. I think the topic today is going to be really interesting for people to hear. It's kind of a few topics mashed up into one. I guess if you were to title this episode, what would you title this episode? So I went with individual variation in people's abilities to reach goals is what I encompassed it as. And I don't want it to be 
seen as like excuses for why you might not be reaching your goals, but like reasons why you need to find the best path for you versus copying what someone else is doing. Do you think that happens a lot? I think like on Instagram a lot, like people sharing like what I ate in a day or like what my macros are or whatever. And it's just, it might be helpful to an extent for like ideas, but at the end of the day, you got to figure out what's best for you. And like my, one of my friends and I laugh because like some of these girls will post stuff and there's not a vegetable to be seen. Yeah, they're hitting their macros, but there's no real like micronutrients in what they're eating. And so I don't know. I think it's just you got to find what's like best for you. Yeah, it's really prevalent in the CrossFit space. I think anytime, like with athletes, I find it interesting to see how people eat, but I don't go so far as to feel an urge to emulate. I just, Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting. With that said, I don't think I've ever posted a day of eating anywhere on any social media platform because I know that there are people out there who do emulate. Yeah. And especially when you're looking at like elite athletes, there's a line like, where you're eating for health and then you cross over into eating for performance. Yeah. Performance eating is not necessarily good for health. Just like eating for health is not going to be necessarily good for performance. So I think there's a, a delineation there that's necessary that people don't always intuitively make. And I think sometimes I'll get asked to be able to see my food logs. Or oh, like, people ask you that. Yeah. It, oh, it's been like quite a few times in the last like month or so. And I find it like a hard question to answer because I don't want to put this line between me and the person as no, I'm different than you. So like what I eat isn't what you should be eating. I don't like that kind of messaging, but at the same time, my goals are different than yours. I know what your goals are and they're different. So what I'm eating probably isn't necessarily appropriate for you. Yeah. So like an example that I think of is that I'll eat like an energy bar, like a cliff bar or something, which is, I think they're like 280 calories or something. They're not filling whatsoever. No, I eat them because I have a hard time eating enough for the training that I'm doing. So it's just like a way basically to get calories in versus like someone who is trying to lose weight. That might not be a great option for them because it's not going to fill them up. It's going to be like, basically like they didn't eat anything. They're going to be hungry in an hour. And they could have filled those calories with something a lot more satiating or better for their goals. Yeah. I remember when I was peak training, like regionals, games level training, eating was really the hardest part of that whole situation. And you are eating to get calories in. So you can't be looking at a lot of whole foods or like very nutrient rich. Like you're literally, you're trying to find foods that are more processed so that you can eat more yeah. essentially without feeling super uncomfortable, even though that's, that's inevitable anyways. Yeah. And yeah, like at the end of the day, personally, and I'm sure with you too, like my last meal of the day, I really try to like pack in the vegetables. Cause there's obviously still benefits to getting micronutrients in for recovery and stuff. But at the end of the day, the main thing that you need is those calories. So throughout the day, it's just like whatever you can comfortably get in. Yeah. Yeah. Super important. One of my clients the other day was like, I really want to focus on getting healthier foods in after my long runs. She's my appetite's kind of weird and I opt for like highly palatable things. I'm not normally going to say to someone like, yeah, you should eat lower quality foods, but there are instances where I'm like, there's value there. Like if you can't stomach like vegetables and you feel like, you know, it makes your stomach upset or you're really full or what you don't want the extra fiber, like 
opting for a sandwich without vegetables to get carbs and protein in isn't the worst idea. Like opting for a restaurant sandwich that has a little bit more sodium, also not a bad idea. But would I recommend that to somebody who's not running like 30K? Maybe not. But then you can also say, yeah, you can have a sandwich at a restaurant, but there's a different reason for it. Maybe balance it out. It's like everyone's diets look completely different and they're so dependent on goals. And sometimes you can have the same goal as someone and your diets can look totally different and you can still be working towards the same goal. Yeah. 100%. Nice one, Alex. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Just wanted to chime in. I'm still here. <laughs> so yeah. So as I was like thinking through this and like I told Meredith earlier today, I did go down a couple rabbit holes. So hopefully we can bring this all back and show how it's related. But I kind of split it into like, how do people differ psychologically, physiologically, genetically, which obviously ties into both of those. And then how our environments really can affect our abilities to eat like a certain person or eat in a certain way. I mean, I thought those were like good headings to try to keep us organized. Yeah. Yeah. Great rabbit holes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So the first one I went down was psychological differences. And we just discussed a podcast last week with the team about like food addiction. And basically one of the things that they talked about on that one was how psychologically people are like more or less distracted by messaging and by advertising. So a billboard or commercials or something on TV might be really interesting or really like attention grabbing to certain people or as they're scrolling through Instagram, they really notice those like food advertisements versus other people can just like scroll by it and not really notice it. And then if you were to add a specific goal on top of that, say someone is dieting to lose weight, now their like hunger signals are elevated. They're already thinking about food. And now I think we've talked about this before, like when I was prepping for bodybuilding, those commercials were like the most interesting things yeah. <laughs> to watch because like you're already thinking about it. So then it grabs your attention even easier. So when people get on Instagram or wherever and they're like, just eat less, or you work with a client and like right off the bat, they're finding it difficult and they're finding that they're focusing on food or dreaming about food really early on. They probably just psychologically are more like wired to notice things like that and think about things like that. Yeah. And I think even without the predisposition for it, that was one of the takeaways from the Minnesota starvation experiment, extreme calorie deprivation type situations, even in people who haven't demonstrated a preoccupation with food before start to become preoccupied with it. They start mm -hmm. to have dreams about food. It starts to be the main topic of conversation. So add on top of that, any kind of genetic predisposition or psychological predisposition for that and add in like food marketing. I once yeah. did a elimination diet for my gut. I was having really bad gut health issues. In the first 13 days, you have to cut out basically everything except for certain vegetables and meat. And after I think it was 12 or 13 days, you get quinoa. So that was the first grain that you got. And I dreamt about quinoa like three nights in a row. And I don't even like quinoa. <laughs> but I bet it tasted so good. It, it did. It was like, yeah. Mm. I couldn't even drink coffee. I was drinking mushroom coffee, which is basically <laughs> brown tea. Oh. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not a big food person, but man, that quinoa, I was like, I couldn't think about anything else. Yeah. That's cr it's crazy what the brain does. And it's also crazy, like the marketing materials that are out there, like where foods go on shelves, you know, how commercials are. It's there's so much market research to be done on like consumer patterns. It sets people up 
I don't want to say for failure because I don't think it's that black and white, but it can certainly create some problems for certain subsets of the population. Yeah, totally. And people prey on that kind of psychology. Like if you're like standing and you're bored in the grocery store line or the place that I notice it is HomeSense. And I don't know if they have that in the States, but it's basically just like a home goods store. Yeah, they have it. And it's called Home Goods in oh, the States. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Great. There's like an aisle that you have to stand in. And on both sides is just like really like palatable food that's like you I've never heard of before. So yeah. it's like interesting because you've never seen it before. And you just have to walk and like, it's always busy in there. There's always lines. You always have to just stand in it and look around at these foods. Yep. And so like people, yeah, like that gets into the environment side where like, they're really like preying on our attention and like someone who does notice things like that more is probably going to grab those things because they're like so interesting. Yep. And yeah, we could get, we should just jump into environment. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah let's <laughs> okay. do it. So yeah, the way that your environment might not set you up for success is if you maybe live in a place like a food desert, which is like areas of cities that don't have a lot of grocery stores or healthy eating options. And then you get into this philosophical debate about whose responsibility that is. You would think that like just making sure like having zoning laws or whatever would help to encourage people to go to the grocery stores and stuff. But at the end of the day, if they haven't been eating like that or they're not used to eating like that, then that's probably not really going to help. So then does the government have to subsidize those grocery stores to stay open, even though they're not going to be making a profit? Yeah, that's like the really interesting part of this, the food desert data, which is they've done that. Like they've subsidized grocery stores to go in and provide access to more whole natural type foods unprocessed and the buying and eating patterns don't change. So yeah. then it's what I find interesting about that, even though it's not particularly actionable, is it indicates that the problem is not 100% access. It's access, it's socioeconomic, there's an educational component to it. We'll probably talk about the genetic component to it. There's all these things that impact the way a person selects and buys foods. So it's like the food deserts and the food access needs to fit into, I guess, a bigger picture an ecosystem that includes and addresses all of those other issues and not just, Hey, here's some vegetables. You should buy them. Yeah. Cause it doesn't work. Totally. And then, yeah, I think like another solution that's been proposed is like taxation on some of the less like healthy foods, like fast food and stuff like that. And I just don't know that that helps at all either, because now you're making this food that people perceive as more affordable not affordable. In my mind, that doesn't solve the problem either. It's sort of like channeling cattle. Yeah. Not to equate people to cats, that's not what I'm getting at, but it's like they're, you close off doors people. to go a certain way. So it yeah. kind of accomplishes that, but it lacks the educational component. And then also negates like the socioeconomic factor, which is that processed foods, calorie per calorie are cheaper than yeah. unprocessed foods. Someone made an argument on our page recently it was like a good food, bad food thing, which people always get their panties in a water over that, but that whole foods aren't actually that much more expensive. And I'm like, yeah, if you're comparing like a bell pepper to a Snickers, sure, but let's do calorie per calorie. When people are actually suffering from hunger, from starvation in a first world country and they have access to convenience foods, they're going to go convenience foods because that's like Calorie for calorie, those people don't need to be eating a bell pepper. Mm -hmm. Like, that's ridiculous. Especially, um, like, families and stuff. Yeah. Where you're feeding, like, five, six people, even more. Yeah, like, KFC is going to be the way to go. Yeah. 
I went to Tim Hortons the other day and got a bunch of stuff for 11 bucks. Yeah. She got like a cookie, two bagels, <laughs> 10 Timbits, an ice cap. $11. Yeah. But I did run and I was like, I need a lot of calories and I only have... Because this, you this know, so much, yeah, I just, I, okay. It wasn't a cost thing. I just wanted to, do this. <laughs> yeah. but also the other day I said in every relationship, there's a spontaneous person and then there's a person who is hungry. Yeah. So I'm the spontaneous person. And I was like, let's run a bunch of errands. And Alex had just run like 21 kilometers, didn't have any food. So that's what kind of preceded the Tim Horton stop. But yeah. Anyways. Yeah. A lot of calories for $10. And then. I think to just stay on like the environment stuff, if we get into people's jobs, like certain companies like take the initiative to help their employees be more active or like they provide healthier foods and stuff. But then like, again, if you look at kind of some of the lower socioeconomic jobs that people in those situations have, like they either don't have the budget or they don't care about those kinds of things. And yeah, I think like also in like certain professions, like being a lawyer, I'm sure like Alex can speak to this. Your life is supposed to center around your job and like exercise doesn't matter. What you eat doesn't matter. Like all that matters is that you're performing in your work. And so that is just like another thing that would make people's lives more difficult and hinder their ability or at least be another obstacle in their like road to be more healthy. And then I think what can tie into the next one, as far as like environments go, is just like what you grow up with and what your family provides for you or teaches you, like your parents teach you how to cook or they teach you from a young age what to eat. Or again, like if they're providing you with more nutrient dense, healthy foods, for lack of a better word, like bland foods, we're talking about that principle of repeated tasting or like when you are like used to eating more like healthier, like bland foods that aren't like super, super palatable, then you're like used to eating that. So then like foods that are sweet taste very sweet versus if you're used to eating really sweet foods or really palatable foods, then it's hard to go back the other way. Yep. So just like being conditioned based on kind of like what you grew up with or what you're used to. And then to take it another step and go into more the like genetic side is like epigenetics and how what your mother ate while she was pregnant with you can affect your metabolism and your predisposition to to obesity or some other metabolic diseases and to go like further than that like one thing that like stuck with me and from university was like what your grandfather ate can affect your metabolism no way yeah yeah (laughs) like it like epigenetic changes go down the stream like that. It's interesting, like both ways, because people will say, oh my God, I can't believe it goes that far back. But then also it's, you can alter the genome or at least turn on certain genes within a couple of generations. Like those changes can occur. Yeah. And they can be quite impactful. My grandpa told me that when he was a kid, he would eat a whole loaf of bread. And I, now I see the apple doesn't fall far (laughs) from the tree. I eat a lot of bread. More scones. Everything is making more sense now. <laughs> yeah, the, the epigenetics really interesting because it's how the environment impacts the way that we, because the genes are there. You're not creating new genes. Yeah. That's not how the genome works. But it does turn on and off certain genes that regulate things like appetite, body weight set points, predisposition for probably different eating patterns and maybe even like the way that you think about food. And then, yeah, just like on that, like certain environmental pollutants we're finding can have an effect as well. There's like endocrine disrupting chemicals, which can have epigenetic effects and 
potentially contribute to obesity as well. And then if we get into kind of what we've, I'm sure, touched on before is like people's differences in non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So you're neat and how certain people are more just like naturally they move around more, they fidget more, they talk with their hands more. And there was this like really interesting study that was done a little while ago where they overfed the participants by a thousand calories. And it was like really well controlled. Like they provided the food, they like made sure that they established their maintenance calories before they started their exercise was controlled. So it was just like a really well-controlled study. And they found that at the top end, the one person gained 13 kilos. And then at the bottom end, the person only gained four kilos. So it was like pretty much everything was controlled. Their food was provided. So they basically concluded that the main difference was just like spontaneous activity. Yeah, Like they weren't allowed to exercise for more than 30 minutes a day. So it was controlled. So it was literally just like whatever they like did, like in their chairs and stuff <laughs> yeah. during the day. The foot tapping. Yeah, like How long was the study? Difference. I'd have to check. I don't think I wrote it down. I want to say it was eight weeks, but that could be wrong. That would make sense. Yeah. yeah. From a That's a pretty significant standpoint. calorie difference per day. Yeah. And yeah. they're saying, I don't know if a study has been done in the opposite direction, but you can assume that it would apply in the opposite direction as well. Like as soon as you put some people in a calorie deficit, they right away start downregulating meat. They don't even notice. They mm-hmm. just stop. Like they blink slower. We've talked about this before. They do less of that spontaneous activity versus like other people, they maintain it for longer. Yeah. And that gets in again, that dual intervention model. When we talked about set point theory, people generally have a range of weights that their body wants to stay within. And as you get closer to either one of those edges, your body and yeah, you just start doing either more or less, depending on which way you're going. You have the homeostatic mechanisms that regulate body weight. So it's just your body trying to be what it is genetically supposed to be. And then the non-homeostatic factors would be unnatural, quote unquote, food environments like this study. Yeah. Like food deserts, the way you like anything that impacts the food that you have access to in the way that you make decisions, non-homeostatic. And then the way that that way of eating can alter epigenetics for your person and future generations. Yeah. So it's the set point theory part is interesting when you intersect it with access to more hyper palatable type foods. Let's talk for a second on the genetics versus environmental impacts to age old question. Mm-hmm. It, be, it is actually. <laughs> no, it's your, yeah. Yeah. Nature, nature versus nature. nurture. Yeah. Let's get in. <laughs> the, it's like people love to get in their camps, right? It's like we live in a very campy society either or. So people will argue that the human genome can't possibly change that much. And so the rise in obesity is all environmental. And then you have people who are doing research and they're saying, we are seeing these changes occur at the genetic level. So the rise in obesity is genetic. The reality is it's like, it's both Mm -hmm. like to oversimplify that, you know, that saying genetics loads the gun, the environment pulls the trigger, like that's kind of an oversimplification. So if you boil down population data and you want to be like, careful about extrapolating data from population and saying this is the cause like that's kind of how we get to this carbohydrate insulin model of obesity when really like the consumption patterns in the 1980s shifted to higher carb because of the campaign against fat and that doesn't mean that carbs 
cause obesity, it means that they contribute too. So anyways, when you look at like the same population, which if you look at like Canada and the US, predominantly the US, you get to look at one like single really generation or sort of two generations and assess what changes are occurring. What are we seeing? Like in 1980, the average BMI of an American adult was 25, which I was shocked to hear that it was that low. Mm -hmm. So 1980, 25 and 15% of people at that time in 1980 fell into the obese category of BMI. In 2020, so 40 years later, this is the most recent data that we have. The average BMI of an adult in the United States is 30. And 40% of the population fall into the obese category. So that's quite a shift. And you're seeing that's occurring across the lifespan of a like a single generation, you're seeing people who in 1980 maybe were not in the obese category or anywhere near it. And then 20 or 40 years later, they are. So you can definitively say that's the, the environment. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can say that the, the environment certainly was a major contributor to it. Yeah. And this is coming from Deirdre Tobias, who's an epidemiologist out of Harvard made this really great tweet on this topic. And she said, she gave the two bell curves for BMI. So bell curve is just how a population distributes across data. So bell curve for 1980, bell curve for 2020, and you see a shift to the right indicating more people are falling into that obese category and like a less significant peak. And so she said, you know, she put a star on the 1980 bell curve and said, this is Chandler, as she gave him a name. This is Chandler in 1980. And then drew an arrow over to the right and said, this is Chandler in the year 2000 or in 2020, who is now overweight. So you could look at this data and say, well, the only thing that has changed is the environment. But she makes a good point and says, but Chandler gained less weight than his peers who are in the same community, have the same food access, same socioeconomic status. So it can't be only the environment. It is also genetics. Mm -hmm. So the extent to which someone, I guess, reacts to the environment is driven by genetics. Yeah. And so that's the, I think that's the- I'm sold on that theory. <laughs> You're sold on that theory. <laughs> it's like a real, real world example yeah. of that yeah. study. The genetic theory explains the heterogeneity and person to person differences that you see in the same population. And then the environmental theory explains- the change over time observed in the same population who have access to the same things. And you've seen the same type of data come out of identical twin studies. Mm -hmm. So twins separated at birth, which actually is so sad. <laughs> like, and I'm saying that as a twin. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love twin but studies. I, love, I was just going to say I love that. twin I studies. Love I remember learning about one in, I think it was university or high school. They were separated at birth and then they found each other 40 years later or like they were re- joined. Yeah. And they were both firefighters. They both had the same facial hair. Yeah. They were women. I'm just <laughs> kidding. That was a terrible joke. Oh my God. <laughs> Kate, Meredith, I provide color here. I'm just sorry. Get in your lane. Joke. But yeah, it's pretty wild. And so it's like, yeah, you want to conclude, okay, it's genetics, but it's like, yeah, I think they both play a part. You can't, it's crazy to me that people are even in camps with this argument. Yeah. That's to me is crazy. So in the twin studies with the heritability of obesity. <laughs> so you have people who have twins who are separated. They grew up in very different environments, both from a family standpoint and like 
GDP socioeconomic standpoint. And so they compared twin studies to nuclear families, to adoption studies, community studies, and then they look at all of the data combined. So the twin data is the most compelling from a genetic standpoint. And the genetic, I want to say the median percentile for heritability of obesity is like 70% to 75% from the twin studies. And then on a community, like a compiled data standpoint, it's over 50%. Yeah. When you're looking across community, families adopted all of the, the data that they have. But anyways, yeah. So it's a strong genetic component, but also strong environmental influence. Yeah. yeah. I always felt like if I did have kids, I would want to have twins and then run little studies <laughs> and then separate give them at birth yeah. keep one give the other one away yeah, i know i think about that all the time <laughs> yeah <laughs> nothing really detrimental you know just like little ones just mess them up a little bit <laughs> just one, one in be. boy clothes and just the other one in girl clothes and see what happens yeah. <laughs> what their sense of self is like in 20 years <laughs> yeah so yeah so I put the next part kind of under physiological differences, but obviously your genetics determine your physiology. So they're together, but the best, I think one of the, like the most interesting examples is in the gut microbiota, which is like fairly like new research as far as like, how does it contribute to things like metabolic diseases and things like that? But it's just like super, super interesting. So like changes in our gut microbiotic can affect like how much short-chain fatty acids we produce, the amounts of those can change how many calories we actually extract from the food we eat. So then your diet pattern, again, this is like epigenetic stuff, will influence how much short-chain fatty acids you produce. So if you are on like a keto diet or you fast or you're high carb or whatever, your proportions of these short-chain fatty acids will differ. That can change how many calories you absorb from your food. And then your gut microbiota can also influence your production of leptin and ghrelin, which we've talked about together as well. It influences inflammation, which can contribute to the development of insulin resistance. And then one of the studies that I found, again, like super, super interesting was they took this factor, it's called toll-like receptor 5, which is part of the innate immune system, and it's expressed in the gut mucosa. It helps defend against infection. When you knock that out in mice and then you feed them a high saturated fat diet, their hunger increases. So their eating increases if they're given food to eat ad libitum. Their chances of hypertension increase, again, insulin resistance and adiposity. And then if you take the microbiota from those mice and then you transfer it into wild type mice, so meaning that the ones that don't have that gene knocked out, they will start to develop those things. Which is basically like the fecal transplant study yeah, in yeah, humans. Exactly. Ish. Yeah. <laughs> so that gets into like, you guys made like a post about weight loss drugs, which I don't know if we want to get into today. But like the main thing with those drugs and the thing with these knockout mice as well was that the main thing that it increased was hunger. And again, with those weight loss drugs, the main thing that they do is decrease hunger. So it's not necessarily in this case, the fact that people are like developing insulin resistance, just like from out of nowhere or like adiposity from out of nowhere. It's that like the hunger increases so much that they just keep eating. And so then they develop those things with the weight loss drugs. They prevent you from being so hungry. You don't eat as much and then you 
start to see the benefits of weight loss in those conditions. Yeah. So what will be interesting to see with the weight loss drugs, which I'm a proponent of using those in the right candidate of people, is that if you're using it in patients who fall into that like morbid obesity category, so think like biggest loser type contestants, it'll be interesting to see if the leptin data out of the phase four trials matches the leptin data that came out of the biggest loser research. Cause that was, that was really interesting from a metabolic standpoint because it debunked, you know, the metabolic damage thing, RMR returned to predicted baseline after weight loss occurred. But what didn't seem to rebound in a expected way or return to baseline was leptin. And so that's the big driver in eating patterns. And it's curious as to why that didn't happen. So it'll be interesting to see a medically assisted weight loss program if the changes in leptin signaling are the same, better, or worse than with natural dieting, but albeit more extreme dieting. Yeah. So if people had a way of knowing that someone had something physiologically different about them, like an abnormality in a gene like toll-like receptor 5 that made them more hungry and more likely to have a hard time losing weight or maintaining a healthy weight, would they be more okay with them using a medication like Ozempic? I don't know. I think the weight loss drugs are really interesting. The new ones, the semaglutide, which I don't even think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Oh, I don't know. I've heard it pronounced a a bunch of different... (laughs) ways, but I'll say, yeah, the semaglutides because it in, impacts hunger, but it also impacts decision-making. So they, they've done rodent research with those. And so it was originally thought that the, so the GLP-1 drugs work on gastric emptying rates, which is pretty, that's how a lot of weight loss drugs work. But in mice, they knocked out the GLP-1 receptors. So no impact to gastric emptying and they continued to lose weight. So it's, they've just, they figured out that it actually, it has more to do with the brain and it's regulated by the brain. And then they are observing lower, like other behaviors that are related to driving dopamine production in the brain. So like shopping, gambling, gambling, alcohol and drug consumption. So all of these behaviors that are associated with dopamine, those also go down. So it just seems to improve decision-making across the board, which I find really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if they would start using some sort of version of those to help addiction. Mm. Maybe if that's, if they're acting on the brain in that way. Maybe I'm sure you you can search like the clinical trials website and see what they're being, what they're in clinical trials for right now. There's a ton. I searched it the other day and it's just like, it's like 40 pages. Did you? Oh, I, of course I did. What do you, what else would I be doing in my spare time? (laughs) You you would think that like, you could also see the benefit potentially in, in other neurodivergent communities or like aspects of like ADHD and stuff like that as well. Yeah, for sure. Do you think there's more stigma, just a quick rabbit hole since we're on the topic, do you think there's more stigma right now with, and again, they're newer, but with weight loss drugs than there are with mental health, antidepressants, anti-anxiety, like mood stabilizer drugs, or is it going to, they're going to be in the same camp? I think, I'm sure there's people who stigmatize both for different reasons, but I do think that there's a population of people out there who believe that medication of any kind is a cop-out. They believe if you're on 
SSRIs or anti-anxiety medication that you're just not willing to do the emotional and mental health work. Or I guess it's the same thing with weight loss. Suffer. Yeah. People think, oh, it's just that person's lazy. They're not working hard enough. So I guess what I'm asking is, are they on the same playing field? Are people going to approach weight loss drugs just like a lot of people approach like antidepressants? Are people going to be like just as ashamed with weight loss drugs as they are with not saying that they should be ashamed, but a lot of people do feel shame when they have to go down that path of medication, which is unfortunate. It's really unfortunate. But I'm wondering if you think that there's going to be more stigma associated with like weight loss drugs. I think right now there definitely is. I feel like people are a lot more receptive and supportive of antidepressants and things like that now. I don't know how new it is, but like in the 70s, 80s, whatever, they didn't. There's way more dialogue now around it. Yeah. Yeah. Like you didn't talk about it. You didn't go to therapy unless you were like really crazy. And yeah, now it's like people are like quick to go on these types of drugs and stuff. And then like weight loss drugs hopefully will follow the same or like similar road. But I think for right now, there's still like a ton of stigma. Yeah, I would agree. Hopefully that there isn't as much in the future with this. Cause right now it's like, there's a lot of negative yeah, perspectives and around this. I think like what you said in the post, if someone doing something to like make weight loss easier for them makes you mad, <laughs> then you should check yourself <laughs> yeah. because like it doesn't affect you whatsoever. That's like my main issue. And I get there are people in otherwise like normal body sizes who are quote unquote abusing this drug Mm -hmm. to try to lose the last 10 or 15 pounds or whatever, just like purely aesthetic, not Mm -hmm. health. And I get that that may bother some people, but again, at the end of the day, does it even matter what someone else is doing? Like it's their prerogative if they want to do that. The only issues that I see is that it's causing supply chain issues for people who actually could benefit from like on a health level from the drug. Yeah. That's the only thing I think with Ozempic is like, they're talking about there being a shortage for diabetics who actually need it. Kim Kardashian is yeah, <laughs> getting everybody it. to take it to get skinny. So like I see that, but yeah, barring the supply chain issues. Yeah, I don't think. Yeah, I think that we over identify with number one, the bodies that we're in. I think that's really people who are in, yeah, I guess, fit bodies. And it's not to take away from the amount of work that people put in to be in good shape. I mean, we have three really in shape people sitting in this room. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't say that like I have lucked my way into the shape that I'm in. But at the same time, like I can understand that there are a lot of people who just weren't born with the same genetics that I have. And that makes a big difference. And so I would not, I would never be one to say like people who don't look like me just haven't worked as hard as I have. Mm-hmm. I realize I did say that in a post the other day, but I was not making that point. <laughs> yeah. I see um, I see clients, I work with clients who I see work harder than me. Yeah. yeah. They eat better, yes. they have healthier diets, they're more like aware of their intake, their habits, building habits, all these things, and they don't look like me. It does have to to some degree have to do with hard work and dedication and commitment and consistency, but that is only part of it. There's so many other factors and that and it's, it's so unfortunate when you just, I saw an Instagram post and this speaks to our topics today. Like there are so many factors to consider and you still see on Instagram and like, yeah, it's the internet, just people out there being like, 
what people just, it's easy. Like people don't need to learn more about nutrition. It's calories in versus calories out. What they need are friends to tell them to get their shit together. (laughs) And it's like, that's absolutely not what these people need. Yeah. Yeah. They definitely don't need some asshole on the internet yelling at them. Yeah. Or like to go back to those, like what I eat in a day, like a lot of these girls will do like a picture of their abs first and then do like, and this is what I eat to get that. Like you're a completely different person and someone could follow that exactly and not look like you because they're, yeah, they're genetically different than you. They're doing different workouts than you. Their life is just different than yours. So it's like, I don't know. Yeah. And it's, it's just unfair to identify with number one, to over identify with how you look and then also over identify with the things that you choose to do and say, I, I look this way because I do these things. And therefore, if you don't, then you're just not working hard enough and you shouldn't take, be able to take a shortcut to get what I have. You should have to work as hard as I have. Mm-hmm. It's like people, they if they feel like they're suffering, they want everyone else to suffer. Or if they feel like they've taken the hard road, they want everyone else to take the hard road. But like, who, like literally, who cares? Yeah. It, like, you don't gain anything by being a martyr. Like, a person who takes a drug doesn't like, doesn't make them a bad person. It's just, it's these people who say obesity is a problem. Being in a large body is a problem, but the same people are not willing to accept that, that people who want to change the bodies that they're in might need a little help to do it. Yeah. Irritating. Yeah. Rant over. (laughs) Even though this was a rabbit hole, I think it does pertain to what we're talking about in a big way. I don't know if you guys saw it. It went like viral on TikTok and then on Instagram as well, where like this girl was like, what are you guys doing? Because I am like sticking to my macros. I'm going to the gym like five days a week and I don't look like you guys. And someone was like, it's Anavar. They're all taking. <laughs> yeah. Also that. <laughs> so that's like a whole other thing. And then this girl like that, which like made me mad. Cause I was like, I've been accused of taking drugs too. Yeah, and I'm like, I just work out a lot. I know. And like, I that was like an exercise addiction. <laughs> That was my thing too. I was like, I wanted to like stitch it and be like, some of us are just doing CrossFit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This other girl stitched it and was like a lot of CrossFit. Yeah, just like a training a fucking lot. Like so much that you probably can't fit that into your day. And yeah, that's a whole other thing. Like personally too, is that we have set our lives up around working out. Like the amount that I train on like Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, is like not possible for some people. Like yeah. you just couldn't fit it in if you had a, like a like a normal like nine to five job. So yeah, so that's like a consideration. And then what I was talking about was this other girl stitch it, and she was like, "And genetics." She was like, "I look like this because I'm naturally skinny." Yeah, and like even when I'm like, I don't know what she said, like thirty pounds overweight. I still have abs or like some ab definition. Yeah. And that was kind of like similar to me too when I was in Australia. Like I'm just like naturally a little bit more lean like through my midsection and carry all my weight like in my legs. But then Ben Carpenter also stitched it and he said the same thing. He has some kind of like IBS or something that like makes him stay really thin. So even when he's eating, he like physically can't eat a lot. And then, yeah, he's been training for, I don't know, 15 plus years that's why he looks shredded all the time. And yeah. nobody talks about that. Everybody's, no, I just like work so hard. Yeah. yeah. There it's was either I work so hard or they take Anavar. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which one is it? Yeah. There was yeah. a time where, I don't know if you remember this, but like CrossFitters 
were like bragging about like eating bad foods. Yeah. Like donuts and stuff. There was like a whole thing about it. It was like they would go and eat donuts or ice cream. And it was like, to me, it seemed like they were like bragging. Yeah. That was like 2019-ish. Yeah. But I'm like, you guys work out so much. Yeah. But then you have people coming to their nutrition coaches being like, how are these people eating so much and eating such shitty food? And they look like that. It's they literally work out five hours a day. Yeah. And like that food actually helps them to work out more. Yeah. It's It's just, it's everyone is just so different. It's hard to put blanket statements. I have to ask, I have to pause and ask a question that I'm embarrassed to ask as like a social media, I guess, manager of our page, (laughs) but what is stitch? Yeah. Yeah. I haven't, Um, I see this everywhere and I'm like, I don't know what that means. It's like when something, it's when fabric rips (laughs) and you have to sew it back together with those, those little packages that you find in hotel rooms that I take every single time, but have no use for them. Thank you, Alex. So yeah, there's like a feature on TikTok where if like you have something to say about someone's video and I think you can turn it off as a creator as well, but if you have something to say about it, you can stitch it. And so then it, the video will start with the original creator's video. And then most people will write like stitch incoming. Oh yeah. And so then it'll start with their video and then go to this new person's or your video so that oh. you can comment on what they're saying. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's called something different on Instagram, but yeah. It's that thing that we talked about on the last podcast or two podcasts ago that we say that we don't do. The dissenting. Yeah. It's like a way to dissent. But I like dissented on the Galveston diet recently. And then yeah. I think she stitched me. Yeah. Yeah. Did she? I she, read a comment that she had posted your video. She did. She did like a, it was like an, an old lady stitch though. Cause she did like a side by side with a terrible selfie video. I was like, oh, use the rear facing if you're going to do that. <laughs> Jesus. Do it. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, no, she conveniently cut the video off before I said anything particularly substantive. So her followers were like, what? Just like mm. shitting all over me. I haven't looked like for my mental health. I'm staying out of other people's comment sections like that one and also the CrossFit repost. But yeah, I think between her followers and CrossFit posting a video of me using the word patronizing <laughs> last week was a what? patriarchy. Patriarchy. <laughs> I didn't see that one. The guy who runs the account at message and asked if he could repost that. And I was like, you do know that I did use the word patriarchy in the video. Yeah. And they, I was like, all right, go for it. <laughs> it was basically and, the one that was on women need to like lift weights, preserve muscle mass for yeah, yeah. healthy aging. Yeah. yeah. And Meredith just made a point saying that like a lot of women who are like in going into the menopausal age and stage of life have been a product of social like expectations that have been somewhat delivered by the patriarchy. Patriarchal beauty standards. Yeah. And people hated that word. And by people, I mean men and probably some like Trump follower women (laughs) with American flags on. Someone was like, I love this video until you use the P word. I'm like, I'm sorry for calling it what it is. She's like, I was going to share it with all my friends. And then I use the P word and I was like, Oh no, I guess you won't share it with all of your friends. Yeah, but why? Here's here's what I want to ask that person. Like, why do you need to share it with all your friends? Or you were impacted by this? Yeah. Yeah, it's like, whatever. Where do you think that came from? Dude, you cannot talk to these people. Why do you think my grandma told my mom that she needs to wear lipstick every day for when my dad comes home from work? (laughs) And don't that come from? Leftovers, Brenda. (laughs) Never leftovers. Yeah. It, anyways, I guess I got stitched. So I'm glad. Thank you. Yeah, now I know. And yeah. I say it as if I make TikToks. I don't even have TikTok. Apparently it's savage. It's yeah. apparently so. And you're validating When it first that. started, it was so funny. Every single video made me laugh 
so hard. And now that like more people are on it, that's like more of a mix of like education and financial advice and capybaras. It's like this, this, I think it's a marsupial yeah. it's in Australia. It looks oh. like a giant guinea pig. Yeah, oh, kind of a okay. groundhog guinea pig gopher thing. Got I'll, it. I'll show it to you. There's this song <laughs> and it's very catchy. I know. The song is made to Instagram. I see TikToks when they make it over, over to Instagram. Instagram. Yeah. yeah. But I, I went once and I was like, oof, nope, too hostile for me. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Things get heated for sure. Yeah. No, it was a really good. This previous week with the weight loss posts that we did and the like menopausal posts, which I don't know, did I have to use the gal? I wasn't expecting that one to get as big. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, but also like read the blinkest version of that book and spent enough time on her website to be like, oh, she is a charlatan. Yeah. She is out to like get people. She references 54. So on her website, this is such a rabbit hole, but I'm going to do it anyways. <laughs> on her website, she has a science section, which is all of her supporting research. And in that supporting research, that whole list, there's 54 studies. I was like, oh, that's pretty compelling. Yeah. Do you want to know how many of those studies have anything at all to do with menopause? I'm hoping at least one. Two. <laughs> Two, great. Yeah. And one of them comes to the conclusion that more research is needed before drawing conclusions, mm -hmm. which happens a lot. I'm sure a lot of that research had the same thing to say at the end. And then the second one was basically like menopause-related weight gain can be mitigated by living a healthy lifestyle. And that was it. That's literally the conclusion that it came to. Yeah. And she takes from that and all of this other research that has nothing to do with menopause. It applies to the entire like population of people that it's like specific fasting windows are needed. <laughs> low carb is needed. Like the diet like borders on ketogenic. Yeah. And then she has a whole list of supplements conveniently for sale on her website. I get that some people probably benefit from that approach because they're checking boxes that they weren't checking before doing that approach. But if it's like most of the research has been done on the regular population of people, why not write a book for the regular population of people instead of targeting a demographic of people who are so like vulnerable and frustrated. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm like, it's because you know, they're going to buy your book, which I think comes back to, again, the topic is that the reason that we preach kind of these like really boring, just like baseline things is because these are the things that apply to everyone. Yeah. And then there's a lot of nuance, like you got to hit your calories, you got to hit your macros, you got to make sure you're getting micronutrients after that timing, maybe supplements. And then everything else is you've got to figure out on your own or like with a coach to figure out like what works specifically for you to get those things working for you. But it's yeah. also like, and we've talked about this too. It's anything past the basics. I just don't see last with people. Yeah. So unless they're doing it for a period of time to solve a specific problem, for example, an elimination diet, like I used in the past, that's just, it's not something that's sustainable. So it's like, there has to be a purpose and a timeline behind it. In mm -hmm. my opinion, you know what I mean? Like anything past the basics, I have never seen work long-term. And we have so many people who come in who I've done, I've done this, 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 this. And they're still looking for more help. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, did she yell? I wow. can tell I'm upset. <laughs> War cry. The, yeah, it's not even like anything beyond the basics. Like people might not even need to move past those things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's, there's like this obsession with optimization and doing more, doing more, doing more. Like, yeah, well, I got the basics down. So what's next? And it's like, there doesn't have to be anything next. You yeah. can just do this for a long time. And I think that's the part that this 
post that we did and the menopausal population, like for a long time, women just, they haven't done any of the basics for their whole lives and not just women, men too, like no strength training, inconsistent eating. And so of course, like they get into a situation when they get older and everything just gets harder where they're not happy with their health. And so of course they're looking for solutions, but the solution is the same as it would have been 20 years ago. It's to do all of those things and be consistent with them. Just like deal with the fact that it's going to take a little longer than it would have when you were 25 to see results. I love the account Train with Joan. Have you seen this account? Oh, I don't think so. Yeah. So she's, I don't know how old she is. She has to be in her 70s or 80s. And she's got an amazing story. And I'm talking like, she was pretty overweight in her 60s and 70s. And that's when she started training. Yeah. And she's done like bikini shows. And that's not to say that you should be doing bikini shows, but she's made an amazing amount of progress in like a phase of her life where people will would tell you that it was impossible to make that kind of progress. Yeah. She works with clients individually and she posts people in her age group that have similar success stories. And it's just like really amazing. It's a great account to follow. It's and like the other day I said, it's never too late, not too old. Yeah. I just had a client ask me like, can I even build muscle at my age? And she's 60 something. And I was like, yes. Like, yeah, you can. You She's can actually write. like older women. We keep going on tangents, but like <laughs> there's so much data out there to support for older women, especially women who either haven't trained in a really long time consistently or maybe haven't trained forever. Some of the best body recomposition data comes out of that population of people, older women, because they're like you can you get to start fresh like at age 60, 65, 70, if you want. Mm-hmm. And your adaptation, even though it wouldn't be as fast as if you had started in your like 20s or 30s, but still pretty amazing adaptation at that age. I had a client who is, yeah, she was like 45 and had never weight trained in her life, started training and her progress was actually insane. She would come in the next day to the gym. I was like, I can see like your biceps have grown like an inch like, overnight. <laughs> it was like so fast. Like, yeah. And like it, they weren't typical results. Like she was like, I would say a hyper responder <laughs> to weight, like lifting weights. Genetic component. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's again, it's not like 60, but for like 45, you would start to think, yeah. oh, I don't know. It's probably going to be like pretty slow. And like, it was wild. But even if you can't build muscle, let's just say. Yeah. You should still do weight training to preserve like the answer doesn't really matter in my opinion i guess it's like motivating to be like you can build muscle for sure and people like to see changes even if you're just doing it to not have any changes in the other direction is super positive you can prevent age-related sarcopenia from crippling you at an unnecessarily young age yeah which to me is honestly more motivating than You can build muscle, but at some point the, at some point the fight becomes not to build or gain, it becomes to prevent and slow down loss. And that's just as worthy of a fight, I think. Yeah. So how do you want to wrap this one up? We've gotten so many disruptions from our animals today. (laughs) It's been great. (laughs) A little distraction. Yeah. So I would just say for all the aforementioned reasons that everyone's different, focus on the basics. Yeah, recognize that you are your own person and there are a lot of factors that are going to affect either like your rate of progress or your ability to reach certain goals, but that doesn't mean that you can't reach like your highest potential, whatever that is for you. Yeah. And I'll say one last thing because I like to have the final word, but you can have the final word after because it's like your podcast, but well, not technically, but this one is featuring you is 
not everything needs to be for physical change also. Yeah. And I think that goes without saying, but I'll say it anyways. Like th- some of these changes, like even if you know that you're never going to have a six pack, like working out, eating healthy, walking more, sleeping more makes you healthier, makes you have more energy, makes you a better person, allows you to do more things that have nothing to do with fitness or nutrition. Like you don't get an afternoon lull at work. You're more focused at work. You can show up for your kids better. You have a healthier mental state. All of those things that have nothing to do with the way that you look. It's all encompassing as always, as we say. So now you can have the last word, the final word. (laughs) I think you nailed it there. That was good. I'll have the final word. If you made it to this point, send us a cucumber emoji. <laughs> a cucumber. You're the worst. Thank you, Lindsay, again, for coming on. It's always fun to have you. Thanks you get really sciencey, and I like it. Yeah. If you like this episode, share it with your friends, subscribe, do all of the things, and we'll catch you on the next one. 